بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم ما بعد We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing formations of the secular, Talal Asad, we are on page 38. Let's read. Okay. With the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, an unmediated divinity became scripturally scripturally disclosable, and his revelations pointed at once to his presence and his intentions. Okay. So... So the Reformation is, is the rise of the Protestants, which are essentially the same as the Salafis, right? Essentially. The idea being that there's nothing in between, that, uh, that the Protestants are saying, we don't need to go through the church to get to God. We don't need to go through priests to get to God. Uh, the, uh, um, so it says, unmediated divinity, so meaning mm-hmm. I have a connection to God with nothing in between, became scripturally disclosable that if I just get, if I know the revelation if I know scripture then that's what I need to get closer to God that's what I need to understand what I need to understand uh, about God and his revelations pointed at once to his presence and his intentions and so likewise what God wants from me it's all there in the scriptures okay I don't need to go through this whole hierarchy of clergy Okay, so how is that like the Salafis? The Salafis are basically saying, I don't need to go through this whole history of tradition. I have the Quran and I have the Hadith, so I have what I need. Yeah. Okay, continue. Thus language acquired the status of being extra real, capable of representing and reflecting, and therefore also of masking the real. Okay, this is is a, a wonderful point. So if the focus shifts to scripture then it shifts away from person to person, and it shifts away from the world around you. The focus becomes scripture, okay? Which then says language acquired the status of being extra real. So instead of just being there as part of communication, that now language, the language of the text becomes more real than everything else around you, okay? Because that's the word of God. And so it's... Masking the reality, like the actual world. So thus, it, it can... Uh, what? No. What? I'm telling you not to take notes. You can take notes. No, I'm saying because you're recording. Them. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so... Uh, and so then it says, capable of representing and reflecting. So it's basically everything you need comes from the, the scripture, and therefore, it can also be the mask of reality, that if you can, by way of going through the language of the scripture, you are getting closer to reality. I mean, that sounds like a lot of what we say, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a lot of what we say in the modern era. Wait, by getting closer to scripture, you're getting closer to reality. Yeah. And you're saying that's, um, that's like a Protestant... So in, in Christianity, it's a yeah. Protestant thing. Yeah. But in terms of us, it is much more of a modern concept. Meaning it's always there. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Quran is always looked at something special. But yeah. what we've also done, like the Protestants, is shift away from this person-to-person-to-person connection. Right? Mm-hmm. Because a major part of the Isnad is, I heard it from this person, who heard it from this person, who heard it from this person. Meaning you're in their presence. Right? And even when you think of the Sahaba, we're describing the Sahaba as people who saw the Prophet, peace be upon him. And, and so our focus has, in, in the modern context, has shifted in the same way. Or I'd say in many of our circles, especially in Islam in America, has shifted to focusing on the text. Okay. I mean, that's totally, that's totally um, mm. 
you know, Maududi Isfar Ahmad. That's yeah. totally that, right? Mm. And what I'm saying is essentially it's taking a sliver out of a bigger package. It's not wrong. It's limited. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Continue. The experiment, in the modern sense of the word, notes Michael J. Serteau, was born with the deontologizing of language, to which the birth of a linguistics also corresponds. Okay, so then what also this means is that this happens by way of language, like we said, which then gives birth to linguistics. Okay? That, all right, the better that I know the language, the better um, uh, I will understand God's will. And so that's how Islamic law forms. The foundation of Islamic law, meaning aside from the source material, is linguistics. How do we determine if when Allah says do this, it's a command or if it's a recommendation? Okay. And, and so that becomes the corresponding thing. Back to this point about person-to-person connection. Imagine instead of us doing our conversations this way, imagine if it was all just in a book. Okay. Like, everything we're saying is in a book. The experience of learning would be very different, right? Whereas in this approach, uh, you will probably remember much more, mm-hmm. you know? And the experience is much more literally alive. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. In Bacon and many others, the experiment stood opposite language as that which guaranteed and verified the latter. This split between a dialectic. Di- didactic language it shows and or organizes in a referential experimentation it escapes and or guarantees structures modern science including mystical science where faith had once been a virtue it now acquired an epistemological sense okay so this whole paragraph is so fascinating about the about the role of of language so so he says language becomes essentially the core and it also becomes potentially mystical. And we have that right from the start. We have Alif Lam Mim, mm. right? It could be that the lesson of Alif Lam Mim is nothing but um, Allah knows what this means, and if you accept that, then you have submitted. But then why here is it Alif Lam Mim, there is Alif Lam Ra, or there is Hamim. And then we find some patterns in such and such surahs which are more qualitative. But then the key point is that everything just becomes, everything becomes language. Yeah. Like, this, this reminds me sort of, uh, this might just be a tangent, but of uh, like reading um, a lot of sort of modernist literature and like people talk about that. This, that's kind of what they sort of, it's similar to what they say where they felt like, you know, since God was sort of taken away from Christendom and, and modern Europe or whatever, all they, they felt was they could do to sort of arrive at any sort of discernible, like, truth or whatever was within the text of the language. So that's why they would just write whatever. They're like, everything is within the form or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and this kind of reminds me of that, where they, because, you know, God isn't there, the, all we can do is just, like, write the best sort of, the best sort of book or story we can write, and maybe some, I'll get some form of truth from that. Maybe, yeah, I'm not familiar with that, but that, yeah. that sounds like this, yeah. Dude, uh, I think Mufti Abu Layth in his podcast was like with Sheikh Amr. He was talking about, um, I remember him mentioning a point about like how here like a big argument we say is like Arabic is the miracle in the Quran and like we're really, yeah. we really talk about that, but he was saying how sometimes that can be like an irrelevant point, mm-hmm. right? Because A, nobody speaks Arabic. Mm-hmm. And then B, he's like, 
you know, that would be like saying, you know, 15th century Japanese is the key to God. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of times we'll be like, well, the Sahaba understood a certain way. or uh -huh. I don't know. I guess it seemed like instead of being focused on sort of the message, it's being fo focused on like the, the language of the Quran. Uh -huh. and like, oh, th this itself is, is quote unquote, the miracle. So, so the question basically becomes, if I read a reasonable translation... Um, and reasonable, I'm saying it's somewhat, somewhat loyal to to the text. Will I understand what I need to understand, right? And the overwhelming opinion seems to be yes, right? Um, if I want to get into depth, however, then I have to get into the Arabic, right? So a lot of times people say, you know, to understand the Quran, you need to know Arabic. And I don't know if I've ever actually heard that from someone who actually understood Arabic, right? I mean, I've heard a lot of Arabs who don't know Fusha say it. I've heard a lot of Desi say it. Um, but people who actually know the Quranic Arabic, I don't know if I've ever heard any of them say it. Right? Um, you can reach a point where translation starts to become, starts to feel very limiting. Right? Uh, but, uh, yeah, if, if I can access the core truths, lessons, instructions in translation then I can say that the language is secondary. Mm -hmm. uh, if I was to say, no, you need to learn no language to, to know the Arabic, um, then yeah, then that presents a huge problem for the whole globe. Right? It seems like just intuitively it'd have to be uh, written in such a way, it'd have to be revealed in such a way that translation can give you a strong sense of the language. Mm -hmm. right? um, the other option being that, okay, maybe it's always supposed to be in Arabic and not translated, but it's supposed to be disseminated from person to person to person. Okay? But as the people go away, then you need translation. Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking too. Like, you know, like, before all of this, like, people just, you know, like, how do all these societies that are clearly non-Arab, that aren't whatever, they've had, they've been fine for so long, for hundreds of years, and it's because of the people that taught it. You know, that, that's exactly what, it, yeah, I was thinking, I was like, yeah, and then think of what is uh, one of the signs of the end of times. One of the signs of the end of times is that Allah will take away knowledge or will take away the Qur'an, and it doesn't mean that the Qur'an is going to vanish. It means that the people of the Qur'an are going to vanish. Right? They're going to die off. Because knowledge is in people. And another way to frame this is that, all right, suppose in some bizarro freak occurrence all the libraries of the world were destroyed. Okay. Um, then where does that leave us? Okay. Well, there's all this knowledge that, like, knowledge that's in a book is sort of like potential energy. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's when you apply it, then it becomes active. Right. And that's, there's a famous legend attributed to Ghazali, Al-Ghazali when he was young, uh, various variations, like one is he's like on a boat, and he's traveling, <coughs> and and some thieves come, and they want to steal his stuff. He says, well, don't steal my books. And, and the thieves make fun of him. What kind of books are these that if we steal them, that's going to take away your knowledge, right? And then probably because all started memorizing everything after that, mm -hmm. right? I remember Sheikh Hamza saying something about his chef, uh, in Mauritania. He's, when he was learning, someone said that to him, too. They were like, the only like, true knowledge you have is like books. They would just teach books off of memorization, and he said, mm -hmm. that's... That's the only book you really know, otherwise you don't know it. Mm -hmm. If he can just be lost and you don't remember it. Yeah. And even... If, yeah. The kid memorized this book and still not know it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then taking this... A lot closer to knowing it if you have it. 
even think about like when the the under Uthman, when the Quran is being written and standardized, it has it has no uh, voweling, meaning no diacritics, yeah. right? And when Uthman sends copies to all the different capitals, what else does he send with the copies? Reciter. Reciters, yeah. right? So the written copy is sort of like a skeleton, yeah. you know, just to go back and revise in case you need to. But the actual thing is the person to person. Faith became a way of knowing supernatural objects parallel to the knowledge of nature, the real world, that reason and observation provided. This difference in the economy of inspiration needs to be investigated further, but it may be suggested that the modern poetic conception of inspiration is a subjectivized accommodation to the transformations here referred to. Yeah, keep going. Of course, I do not intend a simple historical generalization. For on the one hand, the idea of an inner dialogue with God has deep roots in the Christian mystical tradition, as it has in non-Christian traditions, and on the other, a fusion between physical and significant sound has been a part of modern evangelical experience since at least the 18th century. Okay, so this fusion between physical and significant sound. We sort of have that already in Salah, right? And for us... Quranic recitation is an act of worship. So it's one thing to know the Quran. The act of reciting Quran is an act of worship. Um, in Protestant tradition, this is something much, much more recent. right? I'm sure it was there in different times, like with Gregorian chants and such. Um, but uh, think of those as not mainstream practice. These would be the people who've gone hardcore become months and such, mm -hmm. but in terms of mainstream American yeah. Protestant tradition, evangelical tradition, this is part of, of uh, the experience. But not, not, but for them it's not recitation of the Bible, obviously, right? Um, this would go more into a few things, whether we speak of, of the gospel, um, like performance of gospel, or whether we speak of speaking in tongues, things like that. But my interest is in genealogy. I do not claim that Protestant culture was uniquely interested in inner spiritual states, as though medieval Christian life, with its rich tradition of mystical experience, had no interest in them. My concern is primarily with a conceptual question. What are the epistemological implications of the different ways that varieties of Christians and free thinkers engage with the scriptures through their senses? Discounting, suppressing, marginalizing, one or more of the senses are also, of course, ways of engaging with its materiality. Okay, so what are different ways where we engage in terms of with scripture uh, or in terms of belief? So think about your senses. So there's definitely, um, uh, so it's definitely hearing. What else? Sight. How? Yeah, so the calligraphy is a newer thing, right? <laughs> Not even calligraphy. I mean, just when you're reading, reading, you know, uh -huh. reading. The Which is a newer thing. <laughs> Wait. I mean, we have that at the time of Abdul Ibn Masud, right? Um, uh, there, it seems to be more of the equivalent of notebooks, right? Because mm -hmm. even when we're saying that Uthman may be pleased with them, sends these copies. Uh, it's not as though copies of those copies are being made, you know, in mass production for a long time. Yeah, the, oh, that's a question I was going to ask. Like, how recent is the sort of mass uh, printing and production of Quran? Like, is that at least a thousand years after the Prophet peace be upon him? That's one of the famous legends attributed to one of the falls of the Ottomans, right? It's one of the theories. This is too simplistic to explain the whole fall of the Ottomans, but one of the theories is that. 
so the 1500s, a printing press, you know, Gutenberg uh, uh, printing press gets invented with movable type, and he's making it for the publication of the Bible, which is hand-in-hand -hand related to the Protestant Reformation, because now everybody has a copy of the Bible, yeah. right? But <clears throat> there was pushback among the Ottomans from embracing this technology. Mm -hmm. One, the, I think the less strong theory is that that's not proper adab uh, in terms of the name of God, that you're pounding it on a sheet of paper. Okay. The other theory, which, uh, which to me actually make, has more, makes more sense, is that the writers, the scribes, realize, okay, their jobs are going to go out of business. Yeah, and, and so they pushed against having this. Mm -hmm. I mean, the exact example, I think, uh, I, I think I was mentioning to us that, you know, people who are involved in <clears throat> railroads are, in America are pushing super hard against the bullet trains and all that stuff. Because that means they're they're potentially going to lose uh, lose all their income, right? And so that makes more sense, right? But the point being that um, that's the 1500s. That's uh, already nearly a thousand years uh, after the Prophet peace be on him. And even then, it still has not yet entered the the, the Muslim world. Um, um, so I'd say probably a maximum 200 years after that. You know, uh, mass printing takes place. I'm sorry. Would sight be like seeing someone recite? So sight would include a number of things. So <clears throat> later we would still say that looking at the Quran and reading it does eventually um, uh, become like an act of worship, right? And I'm not going to call it an act of worship unless you know we can trace it back to the Prophet calling it an act of worship. You know, it's interesting. Like um, looking at the Kaaba is an act of worship. Just looking at it is. Oh wow. Yeah. Um, the Waf is better. But if you're sitting there, like just, if you're there though, yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know if pictures count. Maybe they do. I mean, this. <laughs> like, hey, let's get yeah, yeah. He's like, do you phone background? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And then, um, so so hearing is definitely there. Um, uh, I mean, so another way to think about this is that all right. So I have this ayah up here, asabakun asabakun ulaikel makarabun. Is that an act of worship? Okay, you're confusing me because earlier we very clearly said that's a secularization. Yeah, so that's exactly what I'm asking. <laughs> and I'm saying that uh, it is more ornamentation Yeah. thus secularization. Right? Over there we have La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, a really beautiful thing, uh, but that's more ornamentation and thus not worship, thus a secularization. Okay. Meaning it's giving me a religious-ish experience, but it's not a bava. Right? Um, what about smell? If you smell good, yeah. It's like a... We can like say, a, that's a sunnah. Yeah. Right? It's a sunnah to, to, that the Prophet peace loved good smells. Yeah. Um, what else we got? What about touch? Depends on who. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that's really what it is, right? Uh, for Sunnis, it's, you know... Uh, it's more touching of the person to person, hug, handshake, those type of things. Uh, for Shias, there is the the prayer of the little piece of Karbala yeah. in your in your salah, right? Uh, but the idea being that all right, you know, how much of your being is being involved in worship is a question that he's asking. Okay, and then how does that change? Uh, how did? How did scripture, as the medium in which divinity could be experienced, come to be viewed as information about or from the supernatural? 
Alternatively, in what ways did the newly sharpened opposition between the merely material sign and the truly spiritual meaning become pivotal for the reconfiguration of inspiration? Okay, so this is another interesting line. <clears throat> How did uh, scripture as the medium in which divinity could be experienced come to be viewed as information? So, about uh, the human, uh, the supernatural and such. So, a question I always get is, does the Quran talk about dinosaurs? Does it talk about dinosaurs? I mean, not that I'm aware of, nothing directly. So, <clears throat> does that mean dinosaurs didn't exist? Obviously not, right? So, we often look to the Quran and the Hadith as telling us everything about everything. Okay? Like, there's a cool... Um, file that goes around periodically uh, that shows how the Quran gives you the speed of light. Okay. <laughs> and it was really neat. I mean, the way this guy does his calculation, right? But he knows the answer already. That's the problem. The problem is that if he already knows the answer, then he just have to figure. Then you have to just figure out how to just make it work, yeah. right? And and so so that's one of the issues. Is there is there a programming code in the ground too? Like, well, I mean, there's a book, the Bible code, right? So yeah, people, I like your your this laugh ended. <laughs> like, oh, what? you didn't know that that was a big like. Oh, there was that huge thing with they combined that with Nostradamus and that didn't. Yeah. yeah. So, but another thing uh, to think about is when you're looking at the Quran as a source of information, starting with information about God. What is information that the Quran gives us about God? Uh, it tells us his attributes. Yeah, his attributes. Now, yeah. that's the problem. Okay? <laughs> I knew you wanted that answer. That's why I didn't want to say it. <laughs> no, so, so, but what's the problem with that? Uh, it compels us to try to define God objectively. That Allah is Ar-Rahman. He is Ar-Rahim. He is Al-Malik, Al-Quddus, so forth and so on, right? Um, and what do we lose in the process? Who is Allah to me? Right? What is my relationship with Allah? Okay. And, and so that's what gets lost. So uh, what happens then is you're reading through the Quran, and then every time there's a passage about Allah's attributes, you slide past it because you think, I already know this. Okay. And those are the most important passages. Okay. And, and we slide past because, yeah, I know God is forgiving, God is merciful, God is able to do all things, so and so on. But... Those are the passages, like, if it wasn't important, it wouldn't be repeated so many times. Okay? Mm. And, and then the further step is connect those attributes with what is further being explained in those passages. Right? And so the point is that when you're reading the Quran and it's saying, Allah is Ar-Rahman, He's Ar-Rahman to you. Okay? He's Ar-Rahman to creation. Okay? I mean, objectively, is the Ar-Rahman sure, whatever that means? But um, he is Ar-Rahman to you. And so when you're conceiving of Allah, you know the point I always say, what you think of Allah in your heart will reflect what you see in terms of what happens in your life. So when you're conceiving of Allah, then you're trying to conceive of him as Ar-Rahman, truly, which then means that whatever is happening to you, you are seeing it as Rahma from Allah. Okay? That's very different, as opposed to me checking off these are the attributes of God. Right. As though he's a character. Yeah. All right, 
Robertson Smith, theologian, anthropologist, and devotee of the higher criticism, provides an example of the shifting direction and character of inspiration in his essay on the Old Testament as poetry, where he distinguishes poetry as force from poetry as art. This enables him to speak of all genuine poetry, whether secular or religious, as spiritual. For when poetry moves from heart to heart, it becomes the manifestation of a transcendent force that secular literary critics now refer to by the theological term epiphany. Okay, this is another beautiful, uh, uh, beautiful point. So, and this goes back to what we're saying here about, about this calligraphy. Okay, poetry as force versus poetry as art. Okay, so poetry as force is when you are writing, reading, listening to poetry, and it compels something to happen. Okay, the big idea, uh, the big uh, ideal would be transformation, but even if it compels something in you as like a significant mood change, okay, that's poetry as force. Okay. Poetry as art is when it becomes ornamentation. You know, it's like, yeah, I appreciate it. It's nice. Yeah. And so th uh, that's the secularization, right? So if me putting that up there and specifically that ayah uh, affected things in this room, then that could be, you know, the calligraphy as force. Okay? And it also means that if I change it to a different ayah, yeah. it has a different effect. But when you say uh, force, like, could you say the mere fact that you feel the need to put it above everything else? Is that it acting as force? Like? I'd say um, it wouldn't be specifically that ayah, uh, but it would definitely be the mythology of the Quran in my mind. Yeah. Right? That the adab that I have to give to the Quran is that I should put it above everything else. Right? Um, I'm not sure if that's why I put it above everything else. I think that's how Alhamdulillah happened to play out. Um, uh, and I think it might have been that's the only place where it fit, it, like where it would stay standing. <laughs> but, but you see the point, that um, if, uh, uh, if this was something that had an effect, okay, a conscious effect, then we could call it calligraphy as force. Okay? Now think about the eyes and the on the kiswa of the Kaaba. Okay, uh, that seems like it's just art. What about like, uh, like in the Vatican, uh, or in like Saint Peter's Basilica, like the, the um, painting, the painting, like that, you know? Which painting? Uh, on the ceiling, right? Are oh, you talking about the beginning of life? Or? Yeah, yeah, it might be. That might okay, be. yeah. Um, like if somebody goes there and it just moves them when they see it, meaning would that be? Uh, is that? Depends on what's moving them, right? The art as force, yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you if you uh, so art itself can affect your mood, right? Um, now there a specific theology is being taught, right? And what's interesting, like the recent realization, like uh, like uh, if you look on the divinity side, it's all organs, like uh, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know what I'm talking about. The the. Adam reaching out yeah. with his hand to God. Yeah. Right? yeah, and so like the thing that God is in, it's shaped like a brain, and there's something shaped like a kidney and all that stuff. Yeah. So this is something we found out a couple of years ago. But uh, the point being that it is giving a very particular theology, and, and so then you can make it sort of like scripture. But it's also fair to say that somewhere in, you know, in between, 
paintings uh, in the history of Catholicism have much more of a role than paintings in Islam do. Right? I mean, it's, again, it's kind of like the calligraphy that we have uh, in our tradition. Can you think of um, any examples of art that almost become like part of our tradition? I mean, our architecture. So architecture is definitely there, right? Like, I was thinking about that the other day, because like, I saw a church, but um, yeah. same point. Because uh, it was Eastern, whatever. Anyways, like, you know, I was thinking, like, if, like, Muslims, like, when they go to the Blue Mosque or the High Sophia or, like, even Mecca or Medina, like, yeah. they're amazed by the masjid. And, like, you know, I remember thinking, like, yeah, like, the Blue Mosque is great, right? It's beautiful. Yeah. It's cool. But... Like, it's no different than praying, like, in the Loyola Masala as a... Ultimately. Uh, yeah, in terms of the value of my prayer, mm -hmm. right? It's the same yeah. exact thing. So, like, yeah. I, it just kept... I don't know, it keeps, like, mm -hmm. what, what's the point of that? Like, mm -hmm. it's not like this thing has, like, this magical... Like, mm -hmm. it, it seems like almost too... There's an element of it that makes me feel, it feel fake. Mm -hmm. I don't know... If, that's a good way but to describe it, but like, I'm like, yeah, it's cool, like, it's really, it looks cool, mm -hmm. but it literally does nothing, mm -hmm. right? That like, in terms, uh, I mean, you put it very well, you know, mashallah, that, okay, the value of my prayers in the Blue Mosque and the values of my prayers, the Loyola Masala, or even right here, are the same. Yeah. Right? Or at least we can say the Masala, it's a dedicated prayer space, Jamaat and all that stuff, so let's yeah. say it's 27 times more, right? Um, but yeah, but I mean, the Blue Mosque is also a very good example because of what's across the street. What's across the street from the Blue Mosque? The Hagia Sophia. Hagia Sophia. Yeah. And what's common between the two? It's the same architecture, yeah. right? Meaning the domes, the domes we got from the Eastern Orthodox Christians. And we have made it our own. So that now, in America, when someone builds a mosque, they feel compelled to have a dome. Okay? As though it makes it more Islamic. Yeah. Right? Why, why are you grinning? No, I, it's, it's also funny how how race and culture play into this because, you know, most, and maybe I'm being presumptuous, but I don't feel like most people, for example, who would feel, quote-unquote, amazed or maybe even spiritually overcome in a place like the Blue Mosque or whatever, for example, how would they feel going to, like, Mali and going to great the, the Mud mm -hmm. Mosque in Jenne? Like, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, that's you definitely know. very much, like, Eurocentric, Arab-centric. Yeah, yeah, because it's, like, that... You know, and I, because you know, I, I had that first reaction when I first was like, uh, when I first saw that mosque, and I was like, first I was like, I saw it as a novelty, and then I'm like, you know, thinking about that, I'm like, why don't I have that same like, wow, this is yeah. so amazing. I mean, I do, but it's different, and I'm like, why don't I have that? This is a masjid. Mm -hmm. These people have the same, you know, and in on some level, it's even more beautiful because like the the work they do to maintain mm -hmm. it, all of that stuff, you know, and it's probably like closer to me as far as like where I come from in India and stuff like that you know where a lot of mushrooms are kind of like that mm -hmm. as well right but I was like yeah but people go and gaga over like you know like the blue mosque or whatever mm -hmm. you know even 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 people I've noticed who, for example and obviously you know those are the holy places in Mecca and Medina and stuff right but when they're going on Umrah and stuff like a lot of pictures seem to be like you know what people send back are of, of like the architecture I'm like mm -hmm. Really though, like you know, or like I get, I get kind of annoyed when people share that that masjid in Dubai. Yeah, you know the one, oh the white one. Yeah, yeah. and I'm just like, yeah. for me, it's like yeah. I've always like for I've always I, I, going off of what non felt just also being fake, but also just the fact that like you could like, what is the point of all of this like 
extravagance mm-hmm. when you have like you could just and again I just feel like I'm being presumptuous too right where you could do so much more with that money I that mean, would be so much better islamically I mean, like you know what I'm saying like, well I mean they, they now build skyscrapers <laughs> <laughs> no it's just like it just I, like I saw it people would be like oh there's gold this I'm like yeah. what the hell like the prophet's mosque was like you know they, it leaked like what mm-hmm. would like where do you all right, get like this that, from that's what I was thinking of like you know if the way like we build our masjids it, I guess what sort of brought me back to like maybe this isn't also like faith isn't also silly because I was like you know the prophet said some his masjid wasn't mm-hmm. extravagant at all like it was mm-hmm. just a regular place right like mm-hmm. but we do the same thing here like I mean that's what I mean uh-huh. like it's just you know I'm, I'm for like I, I'm for functionality like there are things about the blue mosque I actually did appreciate mm-hmm. in the sense that like its design was like you know it was good for flow like mm-hmm. practical things were cool about it mm-hmm. but like I mean, I mean, I think that's good for flow because it was so big. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I just meant like even even like MEC's big, right? But they design it with a bottleneck, like uh-huh. in terms of exits and entrance. Uh-huh. But you're right. I oh, mean, like if if the blue mosque, yeah, if if the blue mosque was full, um, I don't remember like all of it, but it seemed like all the entrance was coming from one. There's three. There's like three. All on one side, though, right? No, there's one, each side has an entrance. So the, the okay, courtyard okay. has one, and then there's two. Okay. I mean, my, the question I was raising was that if that mustard was completely full, yeah. would you... I think you'd still be able to have okay. a solid exit okay. strategy. Okay. And the shoe placement, mashallah. Okay, mashallah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, one other thing I think also going off of Adnan to like the value of the prayers is one thing I've always felt, I think, consistently going to any masjid uh, is... And whether it be a musalla or a masjid or wherever, is I always, for whatever reason, um, appreciate the silence, and I also appreciate. It, it just I feel like yeah. it brings me this peace of mind mm-hmm. wherever wherever it may be. It might be like the small, you know, like when I was little, we used to go to this masjid across the street on East Levan Devan, and uh, Masjid Rama, this that yeah. basement one. Yeah, that's that was like where I grew up, and you know, it's my, not there anymore. No, it's still there, but okay. I'm just like. The, my point is, like, it's just, I, I felt the same way there yeah. as far as, like, that peace you get when you go to a masjid uh-huh. that I felt, like, at the most amazing masjid I've ever been to, uh-huh. you know? And sometimes I feel like, a, like, one of the more, um, more amazing masjid, like, you kind of get distracted uh-huh. by the, the structure and you, you lose yourself. Where if you go to a smaller one, uh-huh. you, you're more thinking about yourself or you, like, look at people, uh-huh. you know? You're just, it, it's more, it just feels more human and organic. Uh-huh. Okay, so now, <clears throat> the theory of the masjid is that it's a place where you're prostrating to Allah, meaning you're celebrating Allah, okay? Now, think of all the famous masjids you can think of. Who are they actually celebrating? Who is the Blue Mosque celebrating? The, uh, the Ottomans. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the one in Abu Dhabi, which, who is that celebrating? The, the person the, who made it, yeah, the, right? And so, so, that's illustrating the whole point that it's been co-opted. Yeah. Right? Mm. It's supposed to be a house celebrating Allah and has been co-opted mm. to effectively celebrate the people who made it. Okay? And then think of all the masjids in Chicago that have, you know, the beautiful design. Yeah. That, uh, uh, like, when you think of the Northbrook Masjid, uh, you know which one I'm t- talking about, right? In Finkston? Yeah. Finkston. Yeah. Uh, when I think of the Northbrook Masjid, I immediately associate it with the people there. Yeah. Right? Um, even though 
what we're celebrating are the bricks on the outside, the facade. Now take it a step further that, okay, so the dome we've, we've co-opted or we've, we've taken from Eastern Orthodox. The minaret we've taken from pagans. From okay. the Persians, right, or something? Maybe, uh, Persian or Iraqis, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, we've literally taken for pagans. Yeah. <laughs> I need a minute to just laugh at that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, the, 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 that yeah. comes from, like, what is it, the ziggurats or whatever? Those Don't remember, are. yeah, yeah. And so, so that's, that's, uh, that's something we've co-opted. But now, take it a step further. Okay, think of how symbolic the mosque and the Juma become uh, uh, of the community. So, or you can say all the prayers, including Juma, including Eid, and so, so how organized is the mosque? Like you gave the example about flow, okay, which illustrates how much attention was given to the uh, to the facade, versus how much attention was given to the operation, mm. right? Uh, which gives you a hint about the mindset of the people who made it, okay. Uh, perhaps even how they take care of themselves, okay. And then take it a step further, okay. No, it's not even shade. Like you just, damn, that's so heavy, man. Yeah. And then uh, look at the cleanliness or the maintenance of the masjid. Okay, that'll tell you much more about the iman of the people. We keep saying iman is half of deen. Okay, mm-hmm. and if our masjids are 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 dirty and nasty, especially in the bathrooms. What is that telling you about the iman of the people? That's, in that the masjid bathroom is one of the worst places. Uh huh. Mm. Oh and that what is that telling you about the iman of the people of that neighborhood? Mm-hmm. And then you get into the salah. Okay, so you have this big, enamorate or elaborate imperial place. Okay, it's basically a palace. Okay, and if it's one line of people for prayers, then what does that tell you about the iman of the people? Okay, and then on top of that, uh, you know. You know the the quality of the Jummah, the khutbah, and all that stuff. Okay, all these things are indicators about the of the iman of the people, and so it can be the most beautiful facade, and it's just a facade, like me wearing a costume to give you the impression that I'm pious. But yet my heart is dirty. That's basically what that's illustrating. Okay. Yeah, this reminds me. Of, I was I was following a discussion. Someone, I think. Uh, Professor Muhammad Fadl was having with somebody online, and the Egypt one. Yeah, where someone you know he was, I don't know where the discussion came, but uh, basically the point that they were discussing was whether or not Egypt was a Muslim society. Then uh-huh. the sister he was sort of discussed debating it with. She was like, "Yeah, it is," but he was like, "It might be in terms of like you know Muslims are there," but he said as far as labeling it like a Muslim society, he's like. You know, it goes off this sort of similar point where he's like, people can't even follow, like, traffic. You know, they're not even, like, they're not even following simple societal yeah. rules where for Muslims, those are very, like, you well, should. He, he you said, know? like, there's no notion of uh, public good. Yeah. Right? right? And so he's like, where's Islam in a society if people aren't even thinking about public yeah. good? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. He's like, then Islam is, he's like, eh, he's not as individuals, but he's like, as a society, Islam has left that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And I was just like, it's, that was yeah. Really yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the, it's funny too because the person who was uh, debating with him would always bring up sort of similar to what you were talking about in the sense of these very superficial cultural aspects, like what did this and this and this, and it, it's like, yeah, those are great things. It's not to like de- debase them at all, right? But the soul of it is is completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. So where do we leave off? Uh, but as skepticism, unfortunately. Okay, so let's stop at the top of 
41. That's actually a good place to stop because then it gets into skepticism and such. Okay. All right. Any last questions or thoughts? Also, that mu the mustard thing it reminded me of. Uh, sorry, of uh, uh, Joe Bradford. He always has that that photo. Or a lot of other people I've seen it of that. The the musellas they have in the desert where they're just like marked out by stones oh, cool. Cool. and there's just like a little you know like a little qibla and I was like I wonder I was just thinking to myself I was like I wonder if I'll feel the same way if I go like that'd be interesting musella. yeah that'd be really really interesting yeah. Yeah. yeah I was gonna say wouldn't like fashion and music also fall under art because they're assigned religious values as mm -hmm. well right oh for sure and so like the way you know. Muslims are supposed to dress, mm -hmm. or right. like even like you know amongst like in like daisies, you know like they listen to knots and stuff. Mm -hmm. and assign religious value to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the complaint I used to have about milad maulid right. was not you know theologically worshipfully you know is it is it legit? Was that okay? If the purpose of the maulid is to express love of the Prophet peace be upon him, then why do you make it so plain and boring? What kind of love of the Prophet is that? Right. Mm -hmm. That think of all the great works of love in the history of the world, whether we talk about the Taj Mahal, or whether we talk about a various symphonies or poetry and stuff like that. Right. Um, except for the things that we we re uh, sing or chant in every every Maulid like Pasida Borda, which is uh, on its own is pretty amazing, mashallah. Um, but I'm just saying that okay. Um, it seems to me if these are expressions of your love for the Prophet peace be upon him, then your love is lacking. Right? Yeah. I want to be yeah. brave enough to say that someday. I'm going to do that to a girl. <laughs> it seems to me that your love is lacking. Your love is yeah. lacking. Um, Alrighty. So we'll continue. Uh, we'll, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta